You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. A writer of faith by day and mystery by night, Patricia Raybon is an award-winning Colorado author, essayist, and novelist who writes daring and exciting books and novels at the intersection of faith and race. After a notable career in newspaper journalism and journalism education, Patricia turned to fiction with the release of a 1920s mystery series about a prim, poor, but clever Black female theologian, a fan of Sherlock Holmes, who solves murder and crime in Colorado's dangerous Klan era. Patricia Wavon, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you today, to be back with you today. Thank you for inviting me again. <laughs> Yes, we are so excited to have you back. It's been a little while since you came on to the show to share about your debut novel, All That Is Secret. And we are looking forward to chatting about the second installment in the Annalise Spain mystery series. But before we get into talking about this stellar new book, how have you been with writing and family and life these past months? Well, thank you for asking. That's often a question that people don't ask, you know, how are you? How have you been? And so I really appreciate the question. I am grateful for family and friends and neighbors and colleagues like you. And in that spirit, I'm writing the third installment of my Annalise Spain mystery. And something very curious I want to share with you informs the process. I read an author tip to enjoy the process and not worry so much about the outcome. And I can't tell you how much that's helping me. It's not my normal approach to not obsess about the outcome. But this time, I thought to myself, just enjoy the journey. And I'm, I'm loving working on this third story so much. And I'm, I've been chastising myself a little bit about not using this approach before. But it's, there's an ease in it that impacts everything else in my life. And I'm, that's how I'm, to answer the question, that's how I'm doing. It, enjoying one day at a time this process of telling this story and believing that the outcome will take care of itself. Yeah, and without the distraction of will it earn this award? Will it reach this number of people without that distraction to just really be in the story and praying over the story and just having God and your imagination guide you through the story? I can imagine that is definitely more enjoyable <laughs> and productive. <laughs> and been in the fictional market for about a year now. Have you noticed any differences when interacting with, with people in the market, readers? Yes. To my surprise, and I didn't expect this at all, but I'm finding fiction readers seem to care about the author and the story in a profoundly deep way. And I really got a taste of that last May. I was blessed to attend the Fiction Readers Summit in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and about 100 readers from the U.S. and Canada attended. And these are book lovers who were 
buying cratefuls of books. And so when I introduced myself, people would get excited and say, I love your book. I love your lead character. I love the story. What's going to happen next? I think about her a lot. And it was just a passion that I wasn't prepared for, but it's so energizing to meet people who love the potential in a fictional narrative to take them somewhere new, to meet, to introduce them to people they would not otherwise know. And they're very open to that. And it's such a contrast to people I meet from time to time who never read fiction, who somehow think it's not as important or that it's just a made-up story. But as, of course, as we all know, fiction, what is that idiom of truth is better than fiction? However that idiom goes, I love meeting people who really appreciate the invitation that fiction gives to all of us to settle in, curl up, and just melt into a narrative that takes us somewhere new. And so as I, to further answer this question, as I write book three of my mystery series, I find myself attempting to write for those readers, committed to write for those readers. And I'm humble, I'm really humbled by this and by the author life and the author work that allows it. And that it honors the passion that I see in readers who love a fictional story. That is so cool to hear. I have loved stories since I was a small child, obviously. And yes, just that that finding out, exploring the world through a different character in their own story. And but just figuring out ways that the world works and how people work and applying that to my own life. Yeah, has made me very passionate about story. I've learned so much from reading fiction and also just it's been a great escape for me at certain times in my life. So that's cool to hear. Yeah, it's both of those things. And and I appreciate you saying that, Darcy, because it's both of those things in an interesting way. A big surprise for me was how writing my, my story and giving my lead character opportunity to do brave, courageous things and and is informing the things that I find myself doing in my own life. And I never expected that. I love story too and have read story my, my entire life. But I didn't know that by writing it and by putting my protagonist in a tough crucible situation and then allowing her to work her way out of it would actually show me ways that I could do that as well. And and so readers affirm that when they say, oh, I I just love this so much. I love the character and I'm really rooting for her. I love that. I'm so grateful to be doing this fictional work right now. I'm very aware that I could be doing just nonfiction alone, but Lord opened this door and I'm very grateful that he encouraged me to walk through it. And now here we are. Here I am on his historical bookworm. <laughs> so I love that. I'm so grateful for it. Yes, that's wonderful. And speaking to books, what would you say is your favorite underappreciated novel? Wow. I, gee, I, I probably would have a long list, but I don't know if 
I told you this before, but my favorite novel is a novel called Cry, the Beloved Country, which is set in South Africa and features two fathers, one white and one black, who both lose their sons in the run-up to apartheid. And that novel came out, I think, in the 50s or 60s. A lot of people who weren't even born at that time missed that novel and don't know about it. So I'm always grateful to share that novel with with readers and friends. It for me it's never lost its its resonance and its beauty and its importance. So I'll put that one on the list. I like that. I actually started reading that one back in high school, never finished it. The style was so different from anything I'd ever read because I'd actually never read any fiction that was written in second person. The writer of that novel kind of switches from third to second at times. I was homeschooled and my mom was actually reading that book aloud to myself and my sisters. And it was really good. But honestly, I think it would I would probably experience it better just reading it myself. So now I need to put that one on my list for this year because... Yeah, it was the first little bit that I read was so meaningful, but I feel like it will be even more so by the time I finish the book. Oh, yes. That's a really good one. Yes. Yes. Let's rec- recommend that one. Well, you've shared so much with us already, but is there anything else especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us or perhaps something God has laid on your heart that you'd like to share with your readers? Yes. Thank you for that question. And thank you, thank you for letting me always go. I write, I do write at the intersection of faith and race. But as an African American author, I can find myself tiptoeing around race matters, fearful that race talk makes some people uncomfortable. And and in fact, in certain political arenas right now, people are discouraged from even bringing up racial issues. But I love that this series that I'm working on gives readers a reason to talk about their own racial journeys, whether they're black or white or otherwise. And what I'm finding and what I'm humbled to share to answer your question is that I'm finding that people are hungry to talk about this aspect of our national journey, but are often told that they shouldn't. But a novel makes it okay to talk. And I didn't expect to discover that, but in book clubs, for example, that's often what transpires. And the conversations are galvanizing and real and compelling. And when you and I talked the first time, you allowed me to dig into some of these areas. But I'm grateful that no matter what politicians and others are saying, people want to talk. And they want to learn. They want to hear from each other. I just never expected how much a novel would affirm these kind of conversations. And so I love that. I've been experiencing that. And one of my, my excitement about this second book is that opportunity will continue. And because uh, people are thanking me for letting them share their particular journeys. And so I'm just, it, it makes me excited because I like telling being honest and talking about hard things that are supposed to to be frightening. But when we peel them back, we find that, oh, gee, I can talk about this and the sky won't fall. So that's something that I haven't said, I don't think, in an interview, but I'm grateful that you asked me that today. 
That is such a good point. In our society, we can be so afraid of saying the wrong thing that we end up saying nothing. Right. And like you say, we can't learn if we don't talk to each other. And the issues of race are complex, but they are something that we run into day to day. And yet we're so afraid to talk about it. And I'm so glad that you do have the freedom, Patricia, to speak your heart. And it is very appreciated. I'm a second grade teacher and I'm blessed to teach in a Christian school. And one thing that I always include when we learn about Martin Luther King Jr. is that Galatians 3.28. And it says that there's no longer a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I use this verse and also the verse in the Bible that talks about how we're made in God's image as a closing. Because when you're speaking to uh, second graders, they're seven, eight years old. And a lot of times they're just so puzzled and like, well, why did they do that? That doesn't make sense. You know, just the innocent heart of a child. And I always like to close with, this is what the Bible says. And what do we do? You know, what do you do in your personal life to the second graders? So I think that's always just important to remember when dealing with such a sad subject in our nation's history. Yes, that's a great gift you're giving them to make them comfortable and competent to talk about this topic from such a young age. That's, that's very, oh, it's inspiring, but it teaches them that the conversation is safe. And so that's a great gift to give. Yeah. And then my students, like if I take out a Bible, these kids, they just, they just sit up straighter, you know, mm-hmm. and... <laughs> No, that's the truth. And so it's not like what I'm saying. It's not what a politician's saying. It's the Bible. And I always tell them, if we always did what the Bible said, we wouldn't have this problem. If people in history just did what the Bible said, what God wanted them to do, that wouldn't happen. So what can you do? And that's how I think we should just probably all just live our lives like that. This is what the Bible said. So what should I do? <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Well, let's dive right into talking about your latest release, Double the Lies. On a cold spring night in 1924, Annalise Spain offers her new fancy lace handkerchief, a gift from her pastor boyfriend, Jack Blake, to a young woman crying in a Denver public library. But later that night, when police find the handkerchief next to the body of the young woman's murdered husband, Annalise becomes the number one suspect and her panic doubles when she learns that Jack has gone missing. With just days to solve the murder before the city's Klan-run police frame her for the crime, Annalie finds herself hunting for clues in the Colorado mountain town of Estes Park. She questions the victim's wife and her uncle, a wealthy Denver banker, at their mountain lodge, desperate for leads. Instead, she finds a household full of suspects and even more burning questions. Who keeps threatening her? Why can't she find Jack? And will a dangerous flirtation be her undoing? Her answers plumb the depths of the human heart, including her own, exploring long-buried secrets, family lives, even city politics, all of which could cost the young detective her fledgling love, and perhaps even her life. So we have mystery, temptation, and murder. (laughs) This certainly sounds like a story with a decent spin of mystery in it. So what Sherlock Holmes-type elements did you weave into this particular story? Well, 
As odd as it may seem for Sherlock fans, there may be a few out there, (laughs) the number one Sherlock element that informs Double the Lies is to be proactive. And I love thinking about that because when we think about Sherlock Holmes, usually the conversation is around his extraordinary ability to detect clues and solve crime that way. But for my lead character, she emulates the fact that Sherlock Holmes is not one to sit around. Instead, he's saying to Dr. Watson, the game's afoot. Yes. <laughs> get, thee, get thee to the country house. Get thee to the opera house. Let's go to High Street. Let's go to the Copper Beaches. Or, and, and Double the Lies, my lead character is Sherlockian in being measurably proactive in a Holmes way because she's starting to learn as she's learning more about uh, being a detective that to solve a mystery, she has to get cracking. She has to do intentionally proactive things. She has to talk to suspects, ask questions, go to scary places, look for what's missing, uncover secrets and lies. And in applying that to the story, I found that it ups the narrative drive because it keeps her moving and uh, and that keeps the story moving and I've enjoyed letting her do that take on that more proactive approach to any mystery or crime that she's trying to unravel but then when I was looking at your question about that I was surprised to discover that there's a faith lesson in that business of that proactivity and I was thinking And I didn't think I was even going to say this in our conversation, but I was thinking about the 10 lepers who asked Jesus to heal them. And as you know, the story, Jesus said, go and show yourselves to the priest. And then the next line of that scripture says, and while they were going, they were healed. And so in the story, Anna Lee takes the same tact, which happens to be Sherlockian, which is applicable because she's a Sherlock Holmes fan. But it gets her moving. And I think it makes for a fast-moving narrative that Sherlock Holmes would approve. (laughs) I like that. And what a good point. For her, it's in her her moving and pushing, Mm -hmm. her figuring out the next step and actually taking it that she's able to solve her mystery. And, well, hopefully she solves it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it can be that way in life, too. Sometimes God gives us instructions and we're like, "Okay, what are we supposed to do with this? Why are we doing this? But it's in the doing. It's in the moving forward that we actually find what we're looking for and find what he's up to with it. That's a really good correlation. I love that. You know, and it can sometimes feel contradictory to the Bible lesson to be still and know that God it, that I am God. That's the lesson. But it's for Annalie, it's in the being still times that she sees that next step. Oh, the next thing I need to do is this and then gets up to go do it. I like that without her being someone who in the story is preaching that by example, she's showing that. And, and so that is, I think, a Holmes element that is working well for her in Double the Lies, and I can tell that I'm using it again in, this, in the third story that I'm now writing. 
Yes, that balance between stopping and thinking and moving forward. I love it. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> How would you say Annalie has grown since the first book? She solved her mystery before. How has she grown as she is approaching this new challenge? Well, in Double the Lies, I think she's recognizing that criminals aren't the only ones who tell lies. And in this story, she tells a lie to herself that shows her that deceit can tempt even the best of us, even her. And so she's learning to look at her own shortcomings. She's good at doing that and not just look at what's in the hearts of the bad guys. And so doing so helps her better solve crimes and also make better choices about what's happening in her relationship, her relationships, I should say. And so there are, it, I like that part of this approach because unlike a police procedural where she would have a book of policies or laws that she has to follow as a self-made amateur sleuth, she has to figure these things out for herself. And sometimes she recognizes that, oh, I have some of the, I may have some of the same traits that some of these bad guys or gals do too. And it provides opportunity for her to reflect on that and think about it. I like that. Just in, I'm sure in her field, it can be easy to think of, oh yes, the bad guys lie, the bad guys have these problems. But people that we consider generally good people and who probably have really good intentions can definitely slip into those deceitful patterns, for instance. That, that's an interesting journey to go on, actually. I like it. Mm -hmm. Yes, because in this story, since a family's lies are central to some of the things that are happening in, in the story, she is aware that there are lies in her own family that she still hasn't resolved. And then when she meets a young man who is interested in her romantically, even though she has already promised her heart, to her pastor boyfriend, Jack, she recognizes that, oh, wait a minute, am I also telling myself a lie about what's happening? And if I am, how is that impacting how I'm able to think about this case and solve it? So I love those kind of questions, and I love presenting them in, as part of the story. Absolutely. It adds really great depth and also makes the characters more lifelike because mm -hmm. they're more like us. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like a fascinating series. I'm so glad that you're moving forward with book two and hopefully book three. I'm not sure how many series you'll have in the book. I hope it's one of those things that just leads to more and more. What are you working on next? I am a contributor to our Daily Bread. And so I'm always thinking about the next devotional for our Daily Bread. And I have a book project with them that is due in April. So that's on my list. And then I am nearing the finish line with God's help, great help, for book three in the Annalise Spain series. It's due in three weeks. It's another fast-moving mystery filled with sleuthing and romantic suspense and spiritual searching. I've been thinking about that because reviews of my series tend to call it fast moving. That's what Publishers Weekly said about Double the Lies. And I was thinking, I didn't set out to write my mysteries that way, but 
I was, and I have studied the importance of narrative drive. And so to keep the plot moving as the detective goes on the hunt and trying to, and is trying to solve the crime, that by default keeps the story clicking along. And so I, I love that for readers who enjoyed that pace. And, and then when I'm writing, I like to keep things moving. So that's what's happening now. And then that then takes the writer to that page where you type the end. <laughs> I'm hoping that from the story that readers will learn something that William Shakespeare said in one of his plays, and that is tell the truth and shame the devil. And that was in the Shakespeare play, Henry IV, part one. And it's a wartime speech. And his most noble character in that play tells it when he's reflecting on a cheater who's trying to pass himself off as a hero. But I share that because my mother used to say that all the time. If somebody said something that she felt was especially true, she'd say, tell the truth and shame the devil. And I used to think it was from the Bible, but it's from a Shakespeare play. And the Bible does say a lot about the tension between truth and lies. And that lying lips are an abomination to God. Psalm 101.7 says, No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. That's what the Lord says. And so I'm hoping that from this book that it will give people opportunity to think about that, that tension when truth collides with lies and how in our own hearts we can unravel those things and get to our real truth and who is Christ. Yes. And for our listeners, Patricia is offering a copy of Double the Lies. To enter to win, just check out our giveaways page at historicalbookworm.com. I'll also have that link in the show notes. And Patricia, where can our listeners connect with you? Yes, four places. My website, which is patriciaraybon.com. And if they go there and sign up for my reading circle, then we'll have a chance to connect on a regular basis. I love meeting people there. And then I'm also on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter still. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been wonderful just talking with you about your new release, Double the Lies. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here and happy reading to everybody. Hi everyone, I'm Kimberly Woodhouse and I'm an author who started walking and riding my way toward my deadlines to get myself moving. And I might be just a little bit obsessed with the Conqueror Virtual Challenges, just saying. But I've started something new and it's called A Million Miles with Kim. The mission is to form a community on a journey to health. We all know that this journey is lifelong and it can't be accomplished overnight. When one of us falls down in the mud puddle, we wanna be there to help each other up. The goal? to make it to a million miles together. I hope you join me, a millionmileswithkim.com. Now for a pinch of the past. For today's pinch of the past, I am dragging you all along to take a peek at one of my absolute favorite topics, the defense of a castle. And uh, our listeners might be glad that you're here, Kylie, to rein me in if I get carried away. Mm -hmm. Oh, I will. I know how you can talk about castles, Darcy. You know it. On and on. No. <laughs> the thing I love about castles is how every detail was important for defense. As decades of siege warfare passed, architects and designers learned to use even the smallest things to their advantage to make a castle as defensible as possible. 
So, of course, the first and most obvious defense for the castle is the walls. Their size varied, of course, depending on the castle, but to give us an idea, a castle built in Wales in the late 13th century had an outer curtain wall that was 20 feet high and 8 feet thick. Wow. I know. That's huge. It is. Eight feet thick. Yes. They would kind of build the outer walls, you know, very precisely. And then the inside, you know, would be filled with kind of rubble and cement, but still eight mm-hmm. feet thick. Now, the inner wall was actually 15 feet taller. So it was a total of 35 feet and it was four feet thicker, making about 12 feet thick. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize that the walls were so massive. Like I knew they were massive, but that's a lot of like brick or rock or whatever you're using. Exactly. It's tons of material. And I've never actually had a chance to visit Europe and stand beside one of these walls. But can you imagine how huge they'd be towering over you? Mm-hmm. And the towers of this particular castle reached all the way to 50 feet. So you had 20 feet high walls on the outside, then 35 feet high for the inner walls. But then the towers, like at the corners of the inner wall, were going all the way up to 50 feet high. So pretty impressive. Yeah. Now, I didn't think too much about the outer wall being shorter. I guess I assumed it was, you know, too expensive to build two walls that were both 35 feet high. But the height difference actually meant that both walls could be used for defense at the same time. Because while defenders on the outer walls are fighting the attacking enemy, defenders on the inner wall can be shooting at the enemy over the heads of their comrades below. So Mm -hmm. that was one way that they used to defend it. And the base of the walls would slope outward slightly, which of course made them thicker at the base, which makes them sturdier. But it also served another defensive purpose, which I'll get to in just a moment. The top of the walls and towers, most castles will sport this notched edge called crenellation. And of course, it's visually very cool. I think it's, you know, quintessential for the castle look. And these scallops, which are called merlins, provided a place for the defenders to hide as they shot between them at the attackers below. But since the castle often had advance warning that an army was coming, they would build like these wooden balconies called hoardings that jutted out a few feet from the top of the walls. And then these hoardings had roofs, which were covered in animal skins to make them more resistant to flaming arrows. And this way, when the attackers came up really close to the walls, trying to scale the walls or use a battering ram or undermine the walls, the defenders could just drop boulders or boiling oil or melted lead or, of course, shoot arrows straight down through the floor of the hoardings. So they had even more advantage that way. Ouch. Man, that sounds painful. These people were serious about their battles. They were. They were. It was, (laughs) it, it could, it could get pretty brutal. And you remember the sloping base at the bottom of the wall that provided a surface for falling projectiles to hit and bounce toward the attackers. Oh, smart. Exactly. So they're, they're taking advantage of like this super tiny little feature. So the last little thing we'll mention is the gorgeous curved towers that you see on some castles. I think it's funny that in the medieval times, when they built curved towers, they were useful for defense, but on the inside, they made it like hard to arrange the furniture and set up the rooms because the walls were curved. And I just find that Mm -hmm. hysterical that they would, (laughs) they would see that. But one of the tactics for breaching castle walls involved digging a tunnel under them so that the wall would collapse under its own weight. And of course, digging under the corner of a square tower or wall was the best place because there's more pressure there. 
but mm-hmm. the round towers don't have any corners. So it's more like trying to just undermine the middle of a straight wall. There's not a particular weak point that they can aim for. Wow, that's interesting. Good architecture. It is. It is. There's so much in the architecture. So the very last thing is the curved towers brings me to the quintessential feature of a fairy tale castle, the spiral staircase. In a real castle, the stairs always spiral clockwise as you ascend. So this means that anyone who like breached the outer wall and is trying to climb up the staircase to seize a tower had to climb with his sword hand next to the middle shaft of the staircase. And since most men are right-handed, he's at a disadvantage. He doesn't have much room to maneuver. But the defenders inside the tower, as they're coming down, not only do they have the advantage of the high ground, they also are carrying their swords to the side of the outer wall of the staircase, so Mm -hmm. they have more room to maneuver. Oh, wow. Yes. Boy, they thought of everything. They did. It's like something as simple as the direction of the stairs was they're like, we're going to take advantage of this. So I hope you all have enjoyed this small tour of a castle at war. Maybe next time we'll talk about a castle at peace or something like that. Time for our bookworm review. All the Lost Places by Amanda Dykes. When all of Venice is unmasked, one man's identity remains a mystery. 1807. When a baby is discovered floating in a basket along the quiet canals of Venice, a guild of artisans takes him in and raises him as a son, skilled in each of their trades. Although the boy, Sebastian Travato, has wrestled with questions of his origin, it isn't until a woman washes ashore on his lagoon island the answers begin to emerge. In hunting down his story, Sebastian must make a choice that could alter not just his own future, but also that of the beloved floating city. 1904. Daniel Goodman is given a fresh start in life as the century turns. Hoping to redeem a past laden with regrets, he is sent on an assignment from California to Venice to procure and translate a rare book. There he discovers a city of colliding hope and decay, much like his own life and a mystery wrapped in the pages of that filigree-covered volume. With the help of Vittoria, a book shopkeeper, Daniel finds himself in a web of shadows, secrets, and discoveries carefully kept within the stones and canals of the ancient city. And in the mystery of the man whose story the book does not finish, Sebastian Travato. This review is by Christy Kay, a member of the Historical Bookworm Review team. The words of the author themselves are comprised of beautiful prose that paints pictures of a crumbling city of Venice and illustrate the hope of its residents. Alongside that historical component is the story of Daniel, a man who seeks to repair his past. While beginning a new job, he meets Vittoria, a vibrant woman who helps him uncover the mysteries surrounding a book he is translating. Inevitably, the two stories collide, weaving the distant past and the present into a rich tapestry of events and emotions. This story is leisurely paced with mild action, and some of the Venetian history was difficult to follow and fully understand. The several secondary characters were interesting and easy to decipher. All the Lost Places has themes of forgiveness and grace woven throughout with very mild violence during the climactic scene. Both stories have sweet romances. 
You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.